Well, it is always right and fitting to give praise and thanks to God for his unchangeable nature, his undiminished goodness, and the rightness of all his works. And I know we're approaching Thanksgiving uh, in just a week or so, uh, but it is our habit, and ought to be our habit, to weekly um, worship God by giving him praise and thanks. Uh, We not only do that in the singing this morning, but in how we hear the word of God being read and taught. Uh, Our hearts are thankful uh, as we listen. Uh, And of course, that's not just the case this morning, but also tonight at 7 o'clock when we have communion together. Uh, And tonight, one of the joys of our communion service is that opportunity to thank God or praise God for those things that he has done in your life. So I just want to encourage you to come. As Ben has mentioned, just a few things before we look at John together. So you can be finding your place in John uh, chapter 3. If you've been uh, or you're visiting with us this morning, we're going through a study in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the latter part of that chapter. But our Wednesday night service has been moved to Northville uh, at 7 o'clock. There's three people at this point who has requested to be baptized, so it's a uh, it's a joy. We're going to rejoice with them as we uh, celebrate that together. Uh, if you need to be baptized, you put your faith and trust in Christ. You've never uh, followed in obedience to be baptized. Uh, then come see me soon, um, and um, preferably before Wednesday. I know when you think it's going to be Wednesday, so I got all the time this week in the world. You don't. Or let me put it another way: I don't. So uh, come see me soon. Uh, so we can work that out. I have been looking forward to the men's conference coming up this weekend, and I know that uh, you have as well. Uh, There's expected to be around 166 men registered at this point, is what Ryan was sharing with me, uh, from all over the place. And, of course, it always is a good time of fellowship and challenge and a good time in the Word. I want to encourage you as a church, and I'm thankful that you are a praying church. I want to encourage you to... Uh, Take some time intentionally this week and pray for this coming weekend uh, and ask God to to work and move and and do things in the hearts of the men's and uh, they represent families and churches all over the place. Um, And so we want to pray and ask God to work through the preaching of the word. Pray as Michael makes preparation. He'll be preaching five sermons and uh, beginning Friday night. Saturday and and, uh, Sunday morning, there'll be five sermons altogether. That is not an easy task, so uh, pray for uh, God to use him and give him strength for that. We're looking forward to it. Well, you have your Bibles open in John chapter number 3. And I'm going to begin reading um, in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He comes from heaven is above all, and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see light, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, One more time, pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would use it in our hearts uh, this morning. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A child, maybe your child, or maybe when you was a child, um, brings home a paper, maybe construction paper, a project, a craft that their teacher has gotten them engrossed in, and they bring it home to you for your approval. And unless you're a very awful parent or a very critical person, you receive that with some word of affirmation, how great this is, and you begin to brag about your child's genius, his ability, his giftedness, and and just go on and on, doting how beautiful this picture is whatever the picture is of um to add to that you'll put that same picture on your refrigerator so that everyone who comes in may also glory in your child's natural abilities Uh, and just to be honest when i was a child and did projects like that i was just happy to to not eat too much glue or whatever Well, there is a way at times we can speak about things uh, that are exaggerated. They're not true. Um, They are built up. There's really more made out of the project or the picture or the painting or the uh, whatever it is than really is there. There's no substance to to carry the weight of what uh, one is talking about. We glory in things at times, glory in things that are not so great after all. We may like them, they may be meaningful to us, but at the end of the day, it's just, it's, it is what it is. And some may suggest that that is the, the way the church has treated Christ. We have made more out of Jesus than what he is, fascinating figure that he is, changing world history. But nevertheless, he is just merely a man. Well, that is not what John is doing in his gospel. In fact, what he does is he glories in the reality or the person of who Jesus is. Uh, he is like the rest of us. We are the child who is trying to make something beautiful out of crayons and stick glue. Even the best of our language, whether it's poetry or hymns that we sing, uh, the best of our paintings that we present, the best of our speaking abilities and and crafting sentences together, we at the end of the day cannot do justice to the magnitude and the greatness of who Jesus is. Would you agree with that? I find that often as I have a text like the one before us or Philippians 2 or many of the other magnificent passages speaking of Christ and his humanity. Every Christmas I prepare my study wondering how do you do justice to a baby born in a manger. We know all that commonness, but how do you truly do justice to the person of Christ? And yet, uh, it is our joy and privilege to draw with our crayons and to rejoice in what little bit of the reality of Christ that we can understand. 
Well, our text this morning in John is the conclusion of a greater setting here. John the Baptist is giving his his last sermon to us, his last teaching uh, on the person of Christ. We've seen that his disciples came to him prompting this discussion uh, at the beginning of this in verse 22, asking uh, him, what are you going to do now that all people is coming to Christ and being baptized? John reminds us, namely at the beginning of this, that his response in Jesus' popularity that people are coming to him is one of rejoicing. It is a joyful, thankful man that we find who has been proclaiming the greatness of Christ to find that other people have come to see something of that greatness. In fact, he says in the context here that he is fulfilled. He has fulfilled his ministry and what God has called him to do. In fact, really, when you get up to the end of chapter number three, this has been building up all along the way. We begin at chapter one, verse number 14 of John's own testimony, saying, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The Gospel of John is about the Word, the eternal Word of God, which has taken on flesh. The the glory of the Son is continually revealed to us over and over through the interactions of Jesus, the things that he says and the things that he does. In fact, I love at the end of that, not only is the glory of the Son seen in verse 14, but grace and truth are his, and he gives them freely uh, to us. Michael Morehouse, in a sermon this week, I was reminded of speaking of the glory of God in the Old Testament revealed in the, the tabernacle as it was dedicated to God, said there was something in that, that that demonstrated the presence of God among his people. The glory of God was revealing in that sense. But he says it was also concealing that unapproachable light, the, the unapproachable holiness of God so God could dwell with his people. I think you see the same thing here in the life of Jesus. There is that revealing of the nature and work of God in Jesus' words and ministry, but there is also that concealing, that unapproachable light of who Jesus is, God the Son, the eternal word. All that is to say is when we look at Christ in the Bible, we find uh, he was a man, without question, a man of his own time. He was born of a Jewish mom, a Jewish descendant. His physical um, appearance and his experience was like that of the people of his day. He didn't run where people walked and he didn't walk where people ran. He, he lived this life in a setting and time among people uh, and lived the way they lived. Uh, we even know that Jesus was one who picked up a trade, who learned how to work with his hands. He was a carpenter. I remember growing up, I thought that was the most holy of trades that you could take because after all, Jesus was a carpenter and And so there you go if you're a carpenter. 
What I'm saying is that his contemporaries, the people of his day, when they looked at him, they saw the man. Now, they saw other things than that. We know they they perceived it, they understood it in different ways, but they saw him in his humanness. He was truly man. And that in itself is remarkable. And some in John's day would have denied the fact of that. And you see John writing later on in 1 John, trying to counter that false teaching that Jesus was not truly human. He only appeared as man by saying, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, speaking this word of life. But he was more than a man. He was more than just the the experience of his day. The greatness of Christ was not not accounted to him simply the way we account the greatness of other men based upon their giftedness or their charisma. His prominence through history or throughout history over the past 2,000 years, either directly or indirectly, is not accounted because he taught lessons on love and and spoke against oppression or exposed a religious system which was abusive. His continual influence on the lives of people, on you or your own devotion, is not the result of overzealous followers making more of him than they should have made of him. And that is very important for us to grasp. Simply what I'm trying to say this morning, and I think what John is telling us in this passage, he is greater, infinitely greater than we can grasp. And so John begins his conclusion here, and some argue whether verse 31 begins with John the Baptist or or changes to John the Apostle. So we'll just say John said. That kind of covers them both, doesn't it? The SV. Uh, writers have put a quotation at the end of verse number 30 giving us a, a kind of their interpretation of this is where John the Baptist stops speaking, this is where John the Apostle begins. Uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to understand which one, uh, and it doesn't matter, the message is still the same. So John the Baptist's argument is that he must increase and I must decrease. And that is the That is the appropriate flow of redemptive history, uh, the redemptive work. John was simply a forerunner. He was a best man to the groom, while Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, He is the groom. He is the one who has come from the Father. But he proceeds in verse number 31 with elaborating for us and unveiling a little bit for us the glory of who Jesus is and why he must increase and I must decrease. Notice with me verse number 31. He begins this by um, revealing to us Jesus' origin or where Jesus is from. Verse 30 says he must increase and I must decrease. Verse 31 says he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And again, you find that same language in verse 34. For he whom God has sent. Where has God sent him from? Well, from heaven. That's what he's saying. From above. 
Now we ask the question, uh, where does Jesus come from? And we might answer that, well, he come from Bethlehem. At least that's where he was born. He come from Nazareth. At least that's what Nathaniel questioned, whether there anything good can come from Nazareth in verse 46 of chapter 1. All of these were true of Jesus. He did, he, he did come from Bethlehem. He did come from Nazareth. Those were his hometowns at one point. We have the records of his birth. But where is he from? In some ways, we answer the question when someone asks something about you or about yourself. Who are you? We oftentimes associate the answer with the place of our birth or where we're from. If you're proud of where you're from. If you're not, then then you don't say that at all. You kind of ignore it and go on to something else you're more proud of. Like that answers the question. I am from, I'm trying to think of some place that everyone likes. Is there anywhere? No, never mind. Where are you from? <laughs> well, I'm from Tennessee, if you can't tell. Uh, and that's the answer. Well, here he reminds us that Jesus' origin is not just in Bethlehem or in a manger. In fact, the anticipation of Christ in the Old Testament as we approach Christmas uh, is is remarkable as we think about the names of Christ uh, in Isaiah's uh, work. Isaiah 9, 6, anticipating this Messiah, it says, and this child will be called a wonderful counselor. And by the way, do you need some counsel this morning? Do you need help? I can tell you where there's a wonderful counselor found in Christ. Counsel is always right and fitting. But he says not only a wonderful counselor, he will be called the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now, we are so used to hearing these words in the church and around the church language for those of us who are raised up in church that that we lose some of the weightiness of what it means that there will be a child that is born that that bears all the weights of these labels he will be called the everlasting father the mighty god the wonderful counselor the prince of peace in fact when we get in the new testament how could a child carry such lofty titles because he was not like us He was not just a child chosen to do great things. He is the very word, the eternal word of God. You notice that back in in our scripture reading this morning in Colossians. John 1 tells us the same thing. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So as we come to understand Christ and his origin, where he's from, what's so significant about him, it begins not in in the time in Bethlehem, but it, it is an eternal reality of his being. He is the eternal word of God. Jesus was not just a significant figure in human history He is infinitely greater than anyone who has ever came before him or who will ever come after him. That is a mouthful to say, isn't it? To contemplate, if we take the Bible at face value and and look at Christ through the lens of what the Bible says, then this one man that lived 2,000 years ago did what he did is the most significant human in, in, in all of the earth's existence. 
There's never been, not even the first man, anyone greater than this man. Therefore, he must increase. All men of our history, even the giants of our current day, are of the earth, John says, including himself in that notice back with me in John chapter number 3. He who comes from above is above all. Speaking of Jesus coming down from God, he is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. And he includes himself in that. That all of us are from, if you will, from the earth, from the dirt. Nobody likes that, do they? We're all natural. We're human. We all share in the same, uh, same beginning from Adam We all share in the same fallen nature. We all share in the same need. There is something significantly different about Jesus who is from above than the rest of us. He is eternal without beginning and end. This is repeated over and over in the section. He is is above all or from above. At the end of verse 31, he who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 34, he is sent from God. Again, back to the conversation with Nicodemus, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is not, he is like us, but he is much more than us. He is divine. He is from above. Why in the world would not people flock to him to hear what he says if he is who the Bible says he is. Why would we not in our own day take some time to consider the reality of Christ and how it impacts us if he is who the word of God says he is? Why would we not stand in amazement and worship and gratitude if he is who the Bible says he is? He is divine, coming down from the Father, coming to us. But notice, secondly, he mentions here setting Christ apart from himself and the rest of us. He has the Spirit, the Spirit of God without measure. Beginning in verse number uh, 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. We'll look at that in a moment. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. It is for us to understand, and that's the message of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number 1, that when Jesus speaks, he speaks clearly and ultimately. He speaks the things that he has seen and the things that he knows. Notice back in Verse number 11 of chapter number 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony, for I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe them. How can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You notice in the language there, he says, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. Now, the we here, they, I think, means him and the Father. Um, Jesus and the Father, which bears witness. 
to Jesus through the signs that he is doing. They testify to what they know. He's not speaking about uh, life and death, about God. He's not revealing God in a manner that is fragmented. He's not just guessing that these are the way things are and the way things are, are meant to be. He is speaking about things, eternal realities, which he knows clearly about. He is the eternal word, after all, who has been in the presence of the Father. There is something about this and that he is coming back to the testimony of John here in our text. Verse number 34, as Jesus speaks with authority and clarity, God who sends him utters the words of God. He's not speaking of his own accord, but he is speaking the very words of God in a much different way. You and I speak the words of God. He is speaking the words of God with all authority bearing witness to those things that he is sure of. Now in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us, and even in the New, God sends out prophets to speak his message. There is a measure of the Spirit of God on them to to carry out the message, thus saith the Word of God. Not only in speaking the Word of God, but we also know that all Scripture is inspired By God, breathed out by God. So even in the transcribing of the word of God, the spirit of God in part is working through these men in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. One of the things Hebrews brings out in chapter number one is they spoke, but they did not always fully understand what they said. In fact, in many cases, they were speaking for our benefit, the New Testament tells us. And not only that, but they spoke through visions and dreams in many other ways in which God spoke in the Old Testament. We could say it this way, they spoke fragmented. It was all true. It was all important without question. But what you see here is that now God speaks more clearly and fully in and through the Son of God. In fact, the Bible in itself makes no sense. The Old Testament will make no sense apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? There's a lot of words in the Old Testament. I didn't count it up. You can Google it. I did that once. But the, but the key, if you would say it that way, the, the key to understanding it and the rest of the New Testament, Testament is found in this, this clear revelation of jesus christ it is found in the son of god that's hebrews 1 you can look at that 1 1 in your own time the reason he is and speaks so fully through the son is because he is the image of the invisible god show us the father his disciples will say later on at the end of the book and we will be satisfied Maybe they're requesting what Moses requested. And what does Jesus point them to? He points them to himself. Well, guys, if you've seen me, I mean, how long have I been with you? You you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
At no point in the Old Testament did Israel ever have an image of God which they could say, this is our Lord, this is our deliverer. In fact, over and over, the problem with Israel is they've gotten too many images from around the surrounding cultures. But here in the New Testament, the Bible says the image is given to us and that image is Jesus Christ. It is here that we're meant to see the fullness of Of who God is. It is in him that we're meant to see the fullness. Of what God's. Or what the father has to say. Not only in his own person. But even in the way he taught and spoke. Was so dramatically different than the people in his day. They were going on about. This guy said this and this guy said that. And Jesus says I say to you. Why? Because the Father's words are Christ's words. He has come from the Father and he speaks of those things which he has seen. And now here when he speaks about the spirit without measure, and a lot of people believe this and I'm in agreement with that. He's speaking about the revealing work of Christ, him coming um, with the spirit without measure. There's more of that um, elsewhere. But here he's saying first and, and for us that he has come. With the Spirit without measure to reveal the Father to us. But thirdly, notice this. We see him in his divine right. Verse number 35 says this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Isn't that a beautiful statement at the beginning of that? Why is the Son exalted? We could say a lot of reasons. But one, John gives us here, is because of the love of the Father for the Son. The Father loves the Son. Undiminishing love, an unbroken fellowship is being referred to here. Not one of pity or compassion. We kind of feel, I think God has pity on humanity. I think you can see that in John 3.16. But here is the, the love of God, the Father towards the Son in the, in, in, the Trini- in the relationship of the Trinity, which we'll look at tonight. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. But, but that, that love, untarnished by sin, by, by uh, brokenness or corruption, Beholding the glory of the Son from eternity past. He says, this is why he has given all things into his hands. In fact, we find that common theme throughout John's gospel. The Father gives glory to the Son because he loved him before the foundation of the world in 1724. The Father loves the Son because he lays down his life in John 10, 17 and takes it up again. In fact, what we find amazingly, turn with me to John 17. This is one of those, you know it's in there, but you've got to see it or you won't believe it, will you? John 17, verse number 26. I may know to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
There is that reminder of God's own pattern of God's love for believers after his love for the Son. And of course, Jesus' own love for the believers as well. But we know that it is the love of the Father which exalts the Son. God gives him the nations as his inheritance in Psalms uh, 2. He's exalted above every creature, given all authority. Philippians 2 says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no seat beside him or above him. He is the pinnacle of all authority and glory. Imagine that. That is the Jesus of the New Testament. That is the Jesus who gives his life for us. All authority is given to him. All glory is his. All creation will bow down before him and confess him, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Some through clenched teeth and others through joyful anticipation. Now here in John 3, turn back with me, John 3 verse 35, we might ask the question, what does he have in mind here in verse 35 when he says all things into his hands? We know that the Son is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He sustains all things. We know Revelation, the inauguration of the new heaven and new earth, is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and stating this is all about Him and this is His. But we know that the Father, as some have suggested, has committed into the hands of the Son the outworking of our redemption that He would come in His obedience. And give his life to redeem a people. You might remember that song as a child. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. Now you can be singing that the rest of the day. It could be worse. I could have. But he's got the whole world in his hands. In one way, it may be a broad and general statement here speaking about his sovereign rule and reign that nothing is outside of his control. In that sense, he must increase because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. There is another thing I think that we see here is that the reality of life and death are in the hands of Jesus. Notice again, the Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. You might recall the vision that John has in Revelation of the of the Son, the, the of Jesus, and all of the brilliance and glory that he has shown. And in that same vision it says that he has the keys of death and hell. Why do I say that life and death is in the hands of Jesus? Well, you see that in verse number 36, don't you? That whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. One commentator or one preacher said this, Jesus is a dividing, eternally dividing figure. In some ways, that's true, isn't it? Go back with me to verse 32. 
He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony said his seal to this, that God is true. You know what the problem was in the Old Testament? It wasn't that God was silent. That has never been the problem. In fact, what seems to be more the problem for the nation of Israel and humanity uh, in general is that God is not silent. That God has spoken, he's conveyed his will, he's conveyed his, his purpose for humanity and flourishing. And over and over we have proved it isn't the issue of intellect. It isn't the issue of what is being said and how it's being said. It is the issue that they did not want to hear it, nor did they want to obey it. The children of Israel over and over had the prophets coming out, thus saith the Lord, and over and over they stopped their ears up because of their sinfulness or their waywardness, and they would not listen, they would not heed. And I would say even today, the New Testament, the, the problem with the Bible in the New Testament isn't the language, the Greek language, it is, isn't even the, the many translations that we have, it is the problem of we don't want to listen People don't want to hear what God has to say unless he says what they want to hear. And that's what you see here, don't you? In verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen. Jesus has spoke of the Father and what he has seen, yet no one receives his testimony. In some ways, John is setting us up for some of the difficult language and teaching that he's going to give throughout the remainder of this book. He will bear witness to what he's seen. He will testify and preach to the multitudes about the Father and about the Son. But people will not receive it. And generally speaking, um, the nation of Israel and humanity continually rejects and will not listen to the Messiah and what he said. But theologically speaking, this is true of all of us. Ours is not the problem of intellect. It isn't that we can't add two plus two and understand sentences and prepositions and phrases, although you may not know how they play out in sentences. I, I get that. I'm with you. But it isn't the problem of intellect. It is the problem of sin, of unbelief, of our spiritual deadness and hardness against God. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, and you recall back in the early part of chapter number 3, where he says a man must be born again, or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A man must be born again, or he cannot see the kingdom of God. Left to ourselves, we will never find salvation and never glory in the Son. We must have something act upon us. The Holy Spirit to open our eyes. The Holy Spirit to show us the glory of Christ, the majesty of who he is and the hope that is found in him. There is that contrast, generally speaking, no one receives him. Verse number 33, whoever receives his testimony sets this seal to this, that God is true. And what is he saying by that? Well, he's just simply saying those who have come and found Christ, those who have come and received Christ have put their seal of amen. This is true. That's why you find dear saints willing to give their lives for the message of the gospel. 
for the fact of what Christ has done for them because this is, this is from God. This is true. That's what he's saying here for us. But he, he gives us this again in verse number 36. Jesus being this dividing line. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, just let me walk you through several statements here that I think will help you. That he is trying to over and over get us to a place to where we see Jesus. That in seeing him we might believe. In fact, that is the whole aim of this gospel record. That's the whole aim of, of preaching, even in a passage like this. is isn't just that you may know interesting facts about Jesus, that, and in seeing him and who he is and what he has done for us, that you may receive him, that you may believe in him. That's the continual theme over and over. Go back to verse number 15 of chapter 3. <clears throat> he says... The serpent must be lifted up in the wilderness so that the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Verse number 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Verse number 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you think he's trying to get something across to us? That's just one chapter. He's continually reminding us over and over of the gift and the promise God gives us, eternal life to those who believe. But just as that is true, the contrast is true. In verse number 16 uh, uh, of God so loved the world, there is that gift of eternal life, but the implication is, impl- is that those who do not believe will perish. Or verse number 18 where he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Verse 35 we see here in front of us, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Life and death, hope and ruin, good and terror are all wrapped up in the Son. Do you know that this morning? That it's all wrapped up in Jesus? He's not only the most significant person in all of history because of his eternal existence before all this ever was, but he is the destination. In him lies the destination of every one of us in here this morning. Every one of your children and grandchildren, their destination is tied up in Christ, either in life or in death. That's what John is saying. That's why we should take heed to how we hear. That's why we should take time to to consider who Jesus is. Because the consequences are eternal. D.A. Carson reminds us, speaking of the rejection of the Son, 
and his commentary on this. God's wrath here in verse 35 or at the end of verse number 36 is not some impersonal principle of retribution, but the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly fallen into rebellion and finds few who want anything to do with him. Such people are condemned already. It is not just sin that is judged, friends. It is the sinner. It is not just sin that will be banished from from eternal heaven, but it is those who live in, those who are remain in their unrepentant sin will perish forever. You see, he's trying to remind us of the significance, hoping to stir up in our hearts by the hearing of the word of who Jesus is so that you and I might believe. What is faith, though? What is belief? And why can it be so comforting? Because it isn't your sincerity. The comfort we find in what he's saying here in belief is found in the object in which we're to put it and place it. You see, he's trying to show us our own humanness, our own frailty, uh, our own limitedness, our own condemnation. But, but the answer and the solution is not found in us or anything this world can produce. It is found in him who has come from above, who is above all. Faith is, is really as strong as the, the object or the substance of it, the person or the thing in which we put it in. What are you trusting in? What do, you, what do you have your hope set in? If you're standing before God at this, this very moment or this hour, at the end of this day, at, at, at that moment, at that meeting, what will, be your, what, will be your, what will be your hope or your answer? If he should ask, why should I let you into my holy dwelling? Well, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, then you or I or anybody else in that situation will be in trouble. Because Christ is the only solution. Really, we answer all these questions in one of two ways. Either in Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father, or in empty promises. The London Baptist Confession states this about faith. But the principal act of saving faith has immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. By virtue of the covenant of grace. That is a mouthful. But let me just highlight one statement in here. It is accepting, receiving, and resting on him alone. That is exactly what John is trying to get us to see. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we might stand and hope and rejoice and worship and live. Well, bow with me for a word of prayer. As you come this morning, I don't know where you stand before God, but I want to ask you, where do you stand in relationship to Christ? Have you, by faith, received him, receiving his message, put your faith and trust in him, and received from him the gift of everlasting life? And if not, why? pray that you would even 
you would even today turn to him and live. And the rest of us, what comfort and courage does the Bible offer to you when you think about life and the chaos that around us? What, what more could he give to us of the goodness of God than that your sins and your deepest needs are met, that the solution is met and found in Jesus Christ? He gives to his people everlasting life. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. Thank you for this morning we can gather. Well, thank you for the vision, the word of Christ in which we can grasp and understand. And thank you for the unsatisfying desire to know more. And I would pray that would be all of us here this morning because he is much greater, more infinite than we can fathom. And we give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.